0: Hi, it's Howard Kellett here. I'm sitting at my desk. Sunday's message didn't record, but I ended up being asked by one or two people if I could uh, record uh, for you. Uh, so you could listen, uh, particularly as I thought it was a significant word. So uh, we're in a series on Acts and we're in part two, uh, two cultures in collision. And we're looking at how the early church was incredibly radically countercultural. Uh, to the Greco-Roman culture of his day, and in many senses, that's not different from where we are now. We find ourselves as the Church in contrast to the prevailing culture, and it does make me uh, chuckle, really, or, or feel sad when when the when the newspapers say, "Well, the Church is so out of step with the culture; the Church is uh, needs to get in line with the current cultural uh, norms," as if that was the aim of the Church. That's never been the aim of the Church. Our our aim is to be in line with scripture and the teachings uh, of Jesus. And so we're going to find ourselves as we go through this series that, that we find ourselves uh, on unfamiliar territory. We don't know much about the Greco-Roman culture, but we find ourselves on familiar territory ta- tackling issues that are important today. And the issue I want to tackle today is um, the role of uh, of women and how the early church was radically empowering for women. And I know people throw mud at the church and say, oh, the church is uh, misogynistic, the church is patriarchal, the church um, kind of doesn't empower women. And they say that about this church as well. Uh, but it's just it's just not true. So we're in Acts uh, 16, and um, let me read uh, and go to work. We're going to look at three people uh, in this uh, chapter that Luke, I think, highlights for a reason, he highlights, not just because they were the only three stories that were happening in Philippi at the time, but because he wants to to make a point about the nature of the early church in the Roman Empire. And I think it's interesting, the, um, the Roman Empire didn't really know what to do with the early church. They didn't really know how to react. They were used to uh, dealing with uh, armies that came against them with swords, and they'd reply uh, with masculine power and energy and thousands of Roman legionaries but how do you respond to uh, Christians who seem to be undermining the culture of, of Rome but, but lived peacefully and paid their taxes and were good neighbours and worked hard? Yeah, those Christians uh, refused to go to uh, temples and, and sacrifice to idols and they definitely believed that Jesus, not Caesar, was Lord. But they didn't quite know what to do with them and, and at first they were ostracised and ridiculed and later they were persecuted. And I'm not saying that... Uh, the church in the UK is going to be persecuted, but certainly uh, we find ourselves ostracised and ridiculed and accused of bigotry and cultural outsiders. So hopefully we can uh, learn some lessons uh, from today. So let me read um, from Acts. Uh, We'll read first uh, about the woman. Uh, Acts 16 verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, Standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got up uh, ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Verse 12. We travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of Macedonia, and we stayed there for some days. On the Sabbath, that'd be Saturday, uh, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find uh, a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who were gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Tyothaira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of our household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Interesting that these events Uh, The first time the gospel reaches Europe uh, after Paul responded to a vision from a man of Macedonia. Although I don't think that Paul uh, and Silas and uh, Luke and Timothy were travelling at that time would have thought, oh, wow, isn't it really important we're going to take the gospel to Europe because they're just moving to another province uh, in the Roman Empire. But yeah, they did cross the Aegean Sea into uh, into Greece and they come to the Roman colony of uh, Philippi. And interesting, Philippi is a Roman colony. Uh, it's almost like a Milton Keynes of uh, the Roman Empire. There's, it's a, a newish town, and therefore hasn't really got any Jewish uh, people in the town. There's certainly not, There's certainly less than 10 Jewish men because Paul's practice would have been to go to the synagogue and you needed 10 Jewish men to make a synagogue. Interestingly, no women were required, no women were required, but yeah, 10 Jewish men to make a synagogue. And Paul's church planting strategy was to go to synagogues. And we'd seen, we heard that last week uh, from Christopher. And, uh, but actually this time there is no synagogue. So Paul must have inquired, where do um, people who are uh, worshipers of, of Yahweh, who, who are trying to follow the Torah, uh, whether they're Jewish women or, or Gentiles, where do they go? And um, he expected to find a place of prayer and he was told to go by the river. And so he does. And when he gets there, it's clear that there's no men there. There's just women. Uh, Luke continues, we sat down and began to speak to the women who were gathered there. And we see nothing countercultural in that, do we? Paul sits down and speaks to women. Great, that would happen all the time. It happens all the time in church life. Uh, but actually, you've got to remember that Paul was, uh, uh, although he was a Roman citizen, he's also a Jewish man. And for years, in his early years as a Jewish Pharisee, he'd have begun his uh, day with this prayer. I thank you, O -O L-O-M, that means eternal God, that you have not made me a woman or a slave or a Gentile. So why was Paul, who'd grown up as a Jewish Pharisee or rabbi, why was he talking to women by rivers? Why were they talking to women about Jesus? It's interesting that loads of people think Paul's a misogynist. That there's no way he would have taught women. That no way that he had any regard for women. That what he what he wrote about women in his in his letters was shaped by the culturally ingrained prejudice <coughs> of the day. That he he had a culturally ingrained prejudice of women. They believe that what about Paul taught about the role of women, wives submit to your husbands in the Lord, um, had nothing but contempt for women, that he was merely reinforcing the patriarchal attitudes of his time. But I think those people are wrong about Paul. You cannot dismiss Paul and say, oh, he just hates women. And therefore what he says about women is wrong. And actually what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to try and underline loads of things about Paul, what he said about women. I'm not going to take that, but I'm just going to take the story and let it talk to you. So I don't believe that that Paul was a misogynist or a patriarchal or anti-women. He was actually a transformed Jesus follower. When he met uh, Jesus, the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was radically transformed. When he went away into the desert of Arabia to reread the scriptures and when he heard and must have heard about uh, the life of Jesus, he was radically uh, transformed. And so he follows his master. He follows his Lord, his rabbi. And who years before spoke to a woman besides water? Uh, yes, Jesus had sat down by a well and taught a broken, outcast woman there. And actually, it's interesting that John, uh, chapter four, John records that is the reaction of Jesus's disciples. He says his disciples marvelled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said to him. What do you want from her or why are you talking to her? The the implication of the disciples of Jesus was, well, you wouldn't want to talk to a woman if, if you didn't want something from her. You wouldn't want to talk to a woman just because she was an individual that needed to be loved and cared for. You'd only talk to a woman if you wanted something from her. But yet Jesus, as we know, beautifully, wonderfully, blows apart the cultural norms. And he told this woman at the well that his father seeks worshippers. It's the same, uh, same phrase, worshipper, as uh, Luke talks about the, the woman here, Lydia. And he reaches out, uh, Jesus reaches out to this woman and brings her truth and freedom, forgiveness, acceptance, inclusion, and life. Jesus's conversation with this woman is significantly the longest recorded conversation of Jesus with anyone. But the, uh, the gospel writers and John, when he records his story, he's making a point. She's one of the first people after Jesus's disciples to, 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 to hear the gospel. And, and, and John wants to make it really clear that, you know, after Nicodemus, that, that she talk, he talks to this woman and this woman was significantly important. And... Um, and so what's happened is that the way Jesus reacted to women was that he empowered them, he encouraged them, he taught them, included them, honoured, respected them. Um, uh, and there's a whole sermon series there of, of, of Jesus' uh, interactions with women that we could talk about. But he sets a culture change in motion that actually was so uh, counter-cultural in the way it treated women, that this Jesus movement was going to do something. And that Motion That change that Jesus set in motion was enacted by the early church and by Paul for the way that women were viewed and valued. Paul following Jesus has no hesitation, no reluctance, no patriarchal misogyny as he reaches out with the gospel to the woman, to the women there. And there's a group of women by the river. But let's just kind of hold that thought before we go to Paul's interaction. And let's just kind of do some background about women in the greco Roman world. A woman in the Greco-Roman world was seen as having little intrinsic value. She derived her identity from the males in her life. First her father, uh, the patria familias, the the head of the household, and then her husband, and then later her sons. Uh, The law recognised her with no natural rights or protections. Women were not permitted to testify in a court of law because their testimony was considered to be unreliable. Interesting, the gospel writers have the first eyewitnesses of Jesus's resurrection, the testimony of Jesus's resurrection from women. There's no way if you're faking the gospel in that Greco-Roman culture that you'd have women doing it, but yet that's what happened and that's what's recorded. In the Greco-Roman world, the value of the female sex was nowhere more evident on the day of their birth. Infanticide was common in the Greco-Roman world. In the economic economy of antiquity, a girl was an expense, an economic liability in the ways that a, boy's, a boy was not. A boy would one day be an earner. A boy might provide for his parents in their old age when there was no welfare state as it is today. A boy might even improve the status of his parents by his accomplishments. A girl, on the other hand, would need to be fed and clothed for more than a decade before she was married off. And upon her marriage, the father would have to pay a sizeable dowry to a husband who was taking on the economic liability of a woman. Thus, we find at the day of their birth that children who were defective in any way were disabled, usually drowned in a bucket of water or left exposed at the town garbage dump to be claimed by vultures or dogs. But archaeological evidence suggests the most common defect for which children was abandoned was Femaleness, those uh, 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 women, kids that were abandoned, uh, uh, that didn't die on the dump or by dogs and vultures, were often taken up by slave owners or pimps to be raised as prostitutes. One ancient letter in the Greco-Roman a husband writes to his wife, if you happen to be pregnant again, if it's a boy, leave it. If it's a girl, throw it out. The ideal daughter for pagan Romans was one physically be- beautiful who could be married off soonest. The typical age for arranged marriage was 12, theoretically at puberty. But many girls were given in marriage at 10 or 11 to a man twice or even three times their old age. And the marriage seems to be, have been consummated whether the girl was ready or willing or not, physically or emotionally. It appears there was no expectation of a loving relationship. A woman's role was to produce a son to be an heir. And now this is awful. Adultery in the Greco-Roman world was common, as was divorce. Women who were divorced by their husband at will, who had no son, would just be abandoned into poverty. The unmarried females, sisters, daughters, slaves, within some un- Ro- Roman households, they were seen as the property of males, but in some Roman households, they were just raped at will. It was described that the best of virtuous Roman man could do would be expect to visit the many brothels. He wasn't expected to have self-control or be faithful to his wife. and now he'd just visit the brothels, and that was very virtuous, because at least he wasn't exploiting the women in his household. So what did these women, sitting by the river in Philippi, expect when Paul, a Roman citizen, dressed perhaps as a Jew, and Silas, perhaps just as a Jew, and Timothy and Luke dressed as Romans, what did they expect when these four men approached? I know today that uh, women, when they go out and are approached by men, particularly in in the evening or particularly at a vulnerable time, maybe outside the city or whatever, they wouldn't feel positive. And I'm sure at first these women were nervous, but Paul sits down. He takes the posture of a humble teacher, that's what Jewish rabbis did they sat down to teach and he's humble and he shares the gospel with the women I'm not sure what he did say I I don't know if he'd talk about Jesus meeting a a woman by the water and explaining that Jesus is seeking worshippers and you are seeking Yahweh and Jesus is seeking you and talked about how that he's the Messiah and I don't know what he said but one of those listening was a woman from Thyatira named Lydia a dealer in purple and she's a worshipper of God. When Luke says she's a worshipper of God, it means that she was uh, not, a, not a Jewish woman, but she was in a, on a trajectory to find Yahweh. She would probably have been following the Torah and would, like Cornelius in the earliest parts of this, a Gentile and Roman soldier, would have been trying to uh, uh, find relationship, find truth in worshipping Yahweh. Lydia was from the, from day Turkey, where we were last week, uh, in uh, Tyrethyra in Galatia, and we know that she, although she wasn't a Jew, she worships God. Lydia is also a seller of purple dye or a seller of purple, the empire's most expensive dye. It was a rare dye uh, and it was of skilled process using rare raw materials to create the dye. Purple in the empire, because of its rarity and the expense of its production, was seen as the color of royalty, it was exclusive an expensive commodity. So for Lydia to be a seller of purple means that she was a businesswoman of some economic means and some standing in the colony and perhaps her role as the purple dealer in the colony gave her some protection as a vulnerable woman in that society. We're not told if Lydia had been married or was married or had been married or widowed, but there's clearly no adult man in her household because if there was a man in the household, he would have been the patra familias, the father of the family, the head of the household. But certainly it seems like when Lydia responds to the gospel, so does all her household. So Lydia is fairly unique in the Roman Empire, a wealthy, independent woman of some status. And then we get this wonderful statement. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of our household were baptised, she invited us to our home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay with us at my house. And she persuaded us. That's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? The Lord opened her heart. And I know that for many of us, that's what we need for uh, when we became Christians. God suddenly opens our heart, softens our heart to hear the message. Perhaps our heart was hard and nervous as the men approached. But by the time she's heard about Jesus and the spirit of God works on her and the gospel works in her, her heart is satisfied. Uh, and she's baptised. And as she's the head of her house, so is the rest of her household. Lydia invites Paul and his companions to her home. Her home, a woman's home, was to become the base of the Philippi church plant. She, Lydia was perhaps the, the patron, the sponsor. Certainly the, the, the church met in her house uh, whether she uh, was a leader or not isn't isn't clear, but clearly she was hugely significant in that church in Philippi, and that is important that women remain hugely significant in the church of God, uh, whatever the governmental structures. But let's ask this question: Who else joined this first-century church that? met in Lydia's house. There's no transfer growth. There's no people hopping from church to church because they didn't like the music, didn't like the worship, or the preaching was too long, or they didn't like the coffee. There are no uh, Christians moving into town looking for a church. It was new converts or no one. So who were these new converts? The answer, straightforwardly, is mostly women and a few slaves and a few Gentile men. And Luke underlines that when we go to the next person in our story, we'll come back to Lydia and the church in her house. So here we got a slave girl. Paul and Silas, and probably Lydia and the women by this time, stick to the plan, and maybe the following Sabbath, Saturdays, they head down again to the place of prayer by the river. Let's read verse 16. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a python spirit. By which she predicted the future that Python spirit is actually comes uh, is often missed out in a lot of the English text, but it basically means that she had the spirit of the Oracle of Delphi long story, but basically this uh, Python had fought Apollo and um, had been murdered, but uh, was able to speak the future uh, in what's the Oracle of Delphi so she's got this evil spirit. Uh, that is able to predict the future. And they call it a Python spirit because it's the same. Uh, it, it links to that story. Anyway, she had a Python spirit by which she was predicted the future. We don't know if he slithered along the ground uh, or not, but uh, let's not get into a long discussion about demon possession. Uh, she, she, uh, she, a Python spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money uh, for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. I mean, this is a strange incident. You know, without talking about the nature of demon possession, here we have an oppressed woman. On the surface, we can see that she's physically and economically oppressed by men. No change there in Greco-Roman culture for a woman, but she's a slave. Maybe she'd been abandoned uh, at birth and taken up by 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 her owners. She may have at some point been a prostitute and now she's a fortune teller. Interesting, why do people get possessed with evil spirits? Sometimes it's habitual and gross sin that they do over a period of time that provides an open door Uh, for evil spirits and the enemy. And I'm not lot loads of experience with this, but often um, sins that are done against people can provide an open door. And I think for this woman, perhaps a life of violent trauma, abuse or, or rape can have been a pathway for evil to enter. But whatever we know about this woman, she's clearly oppressed, oppressed by economically and physically, but she's also oppressed spiritually. And we know that she cries out. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God, telling the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. The spirit's crying out and so is the woman crying out. I don't think that the people listening would have thought this is a free advert uh, for uh, Yahweh, the God of uh, heaven, the most high God, because I think when they would have heard the most high God, they would have thought about Apollo or Zeus. They certainly would not have thought of Yahweh. And so this is just a confusion that the, 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 the woman following, saying these are, 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 are ambassadors of, of the most high God, servants of the most high God, would not have pointed people to Yahweh. And in the end, Paul says, enough is enough. But beyond all, in all the confusion of what's happening, I believe this woman's crying for help. So it says, finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit in the name of Jesus Christ to command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. In that moment, the slave woman is free. Now, Jesus had taught that if you cast the demon out of somewhere, it's like sweeping a house clean. But what you need to do is to fill the house again. Otherwise, the demon's going to go out and bring 15 more in, and it's going to be worse than to start with. And I'm sure Paul would have been familiar with this teaching. So as well as instructing her to be quiet and the spirit to come out with it, I don't think he just left her by the roadside then as if she didn't matter. I believe that perhaps himself or uh, Silas or Timothy or Luke, but probably Lydia, goes and tells her the gospel. Tells her the gospel and maybe told her the story of, of Mary Magdalene, who, who, who uh, tradition has was uh, filled with a demon. Certainly told her about the, the love and grace of Jesus. Certainly told her how Jesus has come to set people free. And, and so therefore, I believe that this slave woman becomes added to the church. She becomes a follower of Jesus and she's filled with the spirit. And she's added to the growing church in Lydia's house. Interesting that Paul makes it really clear that the moment that the, that the uh, sorry, Luke makes it really clear that the, the moment the spirit left her, so did the her slave master's ability to make money out of her. And that was happening as slaves across the empire got free. Not all of them became free, but actually the, the relationship with their masters changed. And so we were here in verse nineteen when the her owners realized that their hope of making money had come out of her same phrase as the demon the demon coming out of her they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities they brought them before the magistrate and said, "These men are Jews, certainly that's Paul and Silas dressed as Jews it sounds, it looks like Luke and Timothy got away with it, and are throwing our city into uproar and here's the here's the critical um, accusation against uh against the christians they are advocating customs and lawful for us romans to accept or practice by this time across the roman empire this was the beginning of a cultural trend where christianity was to become a cultural pariah christianity was an outsider movement in all sorts of ways legal social religious political believers believers were widely despised viewed with suspicion and scorn And as regarded as threats to stable, reasonable society uh, and seen as undermining their ideological and economic framework. The crowd, it says in verse 22, the crowd joined the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they were severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailers commanded to guard them carefully. Let's stop there a moment and ask, what did the... Roman society of the first century and early second century think of the early church. Let me just read you a few comments. This is Celsus, not Celsius. Celsus. says this, Christians show they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonourable and stupid, only slaves and women and little children hiding in their private houses, encouraged to pay no attention to their paterfamilias nor to their husbands here's another one i think it's pronounced uh offered a lengthy diatribe against christianity including criticism that the early church was occurring quote from the dregs of the populace credulous gullible woman who believe anything the inability natural to their sex and it seems like the early church received criticism precisely because it was so popular with women. The male ruling elite believed Christianity lacked the Greco-Roman ideals of masculinity and was chiefly a domestic kitchen religion run by women for children and only fit for slaves—a non-religion, one run by women, opposed to public institutions and the temples. An authority of the empire. Perhaps Paul's accusers in Philippi had noted the church was meeting in Philippa's house, uh, sorry, Philippi had noticed the church was meeting in Lydia's house and was beginning to be populated by women and slaves. And they noticed that they were opposed to all the things that Romans, good Romans were supposed to do. But then we have an interesting twist. We have two women, we've had the rich woman, and the slave woman, and now Luke takes us to a Gentile jailer. uh, Let's read this. It's a little bit long, but I think it does bring an important contrast, so bear with, and then we'll land. Acts 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, but he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and all your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house at that hour of the night the jailer took them and washed their wounds and immediately he and all his household were baptized the jailer brought them into his house and sat a meal before them and he was filled with joy because he'd come to leave believe in God and his whole household now who's the jailer this is a Roman colony so this is almost definitely a former Roman soldier, possibly a centurion who'd retired and due to his loyal services uh, to the empire was given a government government job. The jailer would have been a typical Roman man. He'd lived by the sword, he'd lived by the power of muscle and might, he'd lived by authority and he'd lived by domination. And you can see this in the way that he uh, treats Paul and Silas that they're beaten and bleeding, but he makes no effort to uh, to to care for them. He just puts them in stocks, which he's not told to do, and he throws them in the deepest dungeon without light or air. And he's not told to do that again. The jailer, it seems, has no interest in Paul, or Paul's Christian message. And because he probably thought Paul was weak. Here's a a man being beaten, another one bowing under the boot of Rome. But perhaps he was surprised that Paul unlike, um, and Silas, unlike normal captors who were thrown into prison, there's no anger or cursing or responses, no threats. And it says they were praying and singing, singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. I don't know what they must have thought. What's going on? What are they doing? But then suddenly there's a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison are shaken. And at once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Now, I guess we might think, oh, it's just an earthquake. And, yeah, earthquakes were fairly typical along that kind of fault line by the Aegean. But they didn't think that way. They didn't think, oh, that's plate tectonics at work. What the jailer would have thought is this is the power of the gods being shown. And the power of the gods being shown at the moment that Paul and Silas are calling on their gods. Here is a jailer that understands power, and here is a huge demonstration of power. Such a huge demonstration of the power that everybody in the prison is freed, not just Paul and Silas, but the rest of them. But I'm sure all the prisoners would have come to Paul and Silas. Everybody associated this earthquake with the power. Of Paul and Silas's God, and in a Roman culture that cared about power, they came and said, "What should we do?" But and, and actually, we find out don't we that Paul says, "Don't escape." But the jailer wakes up and he saw the prison doors opening. He draws his sword, about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners would escape. Paul would have known though that in a in a Roman honor culture, this man would bear the full weight of responsibility for any escaped prisoners. Their freedom would have meant his execution their life would have mean his death just as their death had been his own livelihood but the prisoners had not escaped paul shouted to the jailer don't harm yourself we're all here i think sometimes we miss what's gone on here tim keller uh, commenting on this sermon uh, on this uh, passage said this i think sometimes we forget the power of forgiveness Paul and Silas don't save themselves and leave this man to the punishment he would have deserved. They save the jailer's life, possibly at the cost of their own lives and their own freedom. For the power of their forgiveness brings him life. This hardened man is broken not by strength or sword, but by experiencing the power of the joy, kindness, gentleness, and forgiveness of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul himself had been a man of the sword, a ridiculer of women and a persecutor of of Gentiles and, 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 and Christians. And he'd been transformed by the love and risen power and forgiveness of Jesus. Paul would have known that Jesus was a man with all authority who at his trial said to Pilate, the Roman governor, you think you're in power here, but you'd have no power if it wasn't given to you from above. Don't you think that I can't bring down 10 legions of angels to protect me? I know what power's all about. But Paul would have known that Jesus laid his life down in sacrificial love. He would have known that Jesus' body was broken and his blood shed. And I'm sure as he talks to the jailer, he says this is the gospel. That the one who died a slave's death, witnessed by women, He died letting go of its power, letting go of his life, that you, jailer from Philippi, may have life. This is the way of the gospel. Dying, Jesus, makes us one, just as we are, as the uh, uh, service says, one, that we share the one love. Jesus makes us one. Paul was to write later, wasn't it? In Christ Christ. There are no men or male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. He's not saying that all those distinctions... Are gone that there's no such thing as a man or woman that we're all just blended one gender no he's saying that actually there's equality between men and women there's equality between slave and free that there's equality between jew and gentile all of equal value no hierarchy there's no misogyny no patriarchy there's no second class citizens as women there's no women with no place apart from what the men give them there's women in their own right The jailer asks what he must do. He believes and is baptised, dying to the power of a life of exploitation, dying to self-honour, plunged under the water, risen to a life of sacrificial love, forgiveness, humility, gentleness and kindness. Imagine then the next Sabbath, this powerful jailer, this man of muscle and might, turns up with his household at Lizzie's house, a room f- filled mostly with women and former slaves and a slave girl. The jailer joins a community that are so radical, it changed the world. Where women had been seen as not important, as insignificant, as only good for babies and abuse. Here was a different culture. Here was a different place. In the early church, uh, husbands were taught by Paul to love their wives as Christ loved the church, laying down their lives for them. I don't know, and I'm not a great scholar of ancient literature, uh, uh, Roman literature, but I don't know of anything that was more radical or revolutionary that stated in, f- in first century literature than this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Perhaps when... Paul wrote to the, people, uh, the church in Ephesus, uh, wives, uh, obey your husbands, submit to the husbands of the Lord. The Roman culture would have been cheering, yes. But when Paul writes, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, laying down his life for them, they would have been absolutely gobsmacked. They would have thought, what is this? Paul encouraged to this new community. It urged the men to remain virgins until married. It encouraged them to be faithful to their wives. Wives were not divorced or abandoned. Extramarital sex was denounced as adultery. Women were safe from sexual violence. The men used their strength and power to protect the women, to encourage the women. Female babies weren't aborted. Girls weren't forced to marry young. In fact, most Christian communities, the girls married at 18 or older. Slaves were treated as brothers and sisters. Those who were sick weren't abandoned in the street with plague to die, as it happened in Roman culture, because the weak were disregarded. No, there was compassion. They showed hospitality. That's why we got the word hospitals from the first Christian carers. And they risked caring for the sick and the weak and the lonely, even at the risk of their own lives women and their caring men and their protection brought an incredible transformation to this culture glenn srivener in his book the air we breathe writes this today we assume that our modern values are obvious natural and universal but history before the jesus movement tells a different story what happened was the jesus movement the church set in place the rights of women. It set that trajectory, it set that place where women were, were seen rightly and equally as, the, as God's image bearers. They were empowered, they were encouraged, and often, like Lydia, they supported or hosted churches. And I know sometimes that this church, God First, has taken. Uh, pelters I've taken pelters of you cannot with your governmental structure be a church that empowers women or cares about women but they're wrong absolutely that Paul who wrote about men and women wrote about eldership structures in church he create this he helped to be create this culture where men loved women or women were empowered 18 times in Paul's letters he mentions women 16 are identified by name Paul doesn't uh, identify them as, uh, as appendages to their husband. He describes them as beloved co-workers, evangelists, deacons, caregivers. Uh, uh, that, that's, he, he absolutely understands the critical nature of, of the way that women built the church, the early church. And to be honest, it's so true now that women are absolutely critical to the life of the church. They're not just there to make the tea. Or do the kids work? Although those things are really important and need doing. The fact is that women kept the church going. That women of faith through the generations have kept the church going. That that women have been the ones that have empowered and led and and, and hold, hold the church together with pastoral care and open up their house and been hospitable. Yeah, there may not have been elders. And those elders were meant to be caring and fathering and loving and empowering the church but they're absolutely critical sociologist rodney stark estimates that perhaps two-thirds of the christian community in the late first and second centuries were made up of women hear that two-thirds of the christian community in the first and early second century were made up of women he says this this is exactly the opposite to the broader Greek and roman world where women made up only about a third of the population Outside in, this, in, the, in, the, in the pagan Roman world, women are killed so that they only make up a third of the population. Women are abused and, uh, uh, and abandoned. They make up a third of the population. But inside the church, they make up two thirds of the population. It, Rodney Stark continues, Women left the religious systems of the Greco-Roman world with which they're familiar and consciously decided to join the burgeoning Christian movement. No one forced them to do so. No one made them become Christians. No, they were drawn to this radical message of sacrificial love. They were drawn to this radical message of Jesus, the one that empowered women, the one that loved women, the one that, 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 that had women uh, with him and his band, the, women, the woman, the one who taught women, the woman, uh, the woman who, uh, who set a new trajectory, a new course. Women's rights and equality are not something that comes out of the ether. They've come right out of the heart of the Christian gospel, and God first. This church needs to be a church where women are loved and empowered where they can preach, where they can lead, where they can host, where they can lead small groups, they can lead ministries, can lead mercy ministries. They can do so many things. Do we believe in women leaders? Yes. Do women sit on our core team? Yes. Are women Can women be trustees at this church? Yes. Women, there's so many things that women can do. So let's not have any nonsense about this church not being an empowering church for women. Because if we're a gospel church if we're a church that follows the saviour, if we're the church that, that, that te- follows and understands the teachings of Paul in the early church, then we are going to be a church that empowers women. So we're going to first, before we break bread, I want all the women to stand up. That means women. But let's not get into where you assigned be a woman or, or whatever. No, women, XX chromosomes, we want you to stand up. And guys, I want you to just give the loudest, most raucous, most encouraging, loudest applause for them to honour them. I know you're a little bit half-baked when you honoured me coming back from my um, hip operation. But let's really, really give them a huge round of applause. And, and I don't want you to panic, guys. You think, oh no, this means that that that, that there's no role for men. Women are... It's all about women. No, I haven't been, you know, I had a hip replacement in, in being injected with, with, with a feminism. No, but I am, I am a biblical Christian and believe that, that Jesus is the one who, who birthed the, the rights of women. Men, you've got an important role to, to love and to protect and encourage and to cherish. But right now I want you to stand with the women and give them the most hearty round of applause. So God first, that's what we did. And I shed a tear or two as we did that. And it was a really moving moment in God First. And what was lovely at the end of the, uh, of the meeting, at the end of the message, so many women came to me and thanked me, and so many men came to me and said that was, that was great. And it's not so much about me being thanked, but I think this is a critical message for us. We can be a complementarian church, and we can be the most empowering church around for women and their ministry so let's do it let's be a people of the early church who set a trajectory for a change for women let us be a a church that empowers women empowers the slave the the broken the lonely the vulnerable empowers the outsider in jesus name amen